0: Welcome to Reasonable Doubts,
1: your skeptical guide to religion.
2: Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the Venice of West Michigan. (laughs) Just Uh, a
1: bit of flooding.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh, You can find us online at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. You can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids, and W237CZ Hudsonville, 1680 AM and 95.3 FM, and streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher and with me in the studio, my fellow
1: Doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. How's it going? You know, I had a beautiful time taking my gondola to work this morning. <laughs> and Mr. Justin Sheeber. Hello.
2: And of course, Dr. Professor Luke Galen is off yet again. Um, I believe he's up to some kind of monkey shines or perhaps hijinks.
1: I don't know what monkey shines uh, on. <laughs> sure, sounds, sure sounds interesting. Yeah. I, I do consider myself perversion literate, but apparently not that. That's not perverse. No. Oh, that's just not. old-timey slang. Oh, yeah.
2: Okay. Uh, I believe actually he's just grading stuff because it's the end of the semester. Yeah. He's so.
1: promised to return on the next episode. He, he will be back.
2: Um, speaking of our next episode, the next episode will be part three of our martyrdom series, which means, of course, that this episode is part two- of our martyrdom series, but we'll get into that in just a bit, along with some polyatheism at the tail end. First, though, let's start off with a new survey of Muslims around the world with some interesting results. The
1: Pew Polling Agency. Never heard of them. Just recently released The World's Muslims, Religion, Politics, and Society. Hmm. 38,000 people interviewed face to face interviews these aren't surveys that are mailed um, out or anything these is direct contact with these people that's a
2: very big sample size especially yep. for a
1: face to face 80 in 80 plus languages across 39 countries and yeah there's some really interesting findings as with any survey of this of this kind right there's going to be a lot of different variables in play it's hard to pull any conclusions that are easily captured in a sound bite
2: Well, they they did find in fact that all Muslims are terrorists and hate women, correct? Yeah, all are radical jihadis and
1: uh, waiting to you know. No, actually not at all.
2: That was not what my (laughs) God, this is shocking
1: already. In fact, the first
0: question was, do you hate our freedoms?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It was a Fox News poll. No. Well, I mean we can just start with some of the really reassuring things to come out of this. One is that the vast majority of Muslims worldwide say that suicide bombing is not justified ever. What Uh, what
2: percentage? Is that –
1: It breaks down according to region. So you're not going to get the same percentages uh, across the board. But we are going to link to the full report Mm -hmm. of the study. It's 223 pages long. Good luck. It's huge. I've been poring over it all afternoon trying Mm -hmm. to find uh, gems and I have barely even scratched the surface. So I'm sure we'll be touching on this again too, especially –
2: when Luke is around, this is right up his alley.
1: Surely come up in future episodes. But
2: speaking of martyrdom, I suppose it's good to start off with the, the idea of suicide bombers yeah. and that is across the spectrum yeah. in all regions. It's uh, uh, a vast
1: majority. All regions you find a majority of Muslims who clearly say that it it's never justified. Uh, the most strongly against it are going to be Muslims in southern or eastern Europe – Hmm. Um, but comparable numbers in Central Asia.
2: Was the United States part of this study?
1: It was not a part of this okay. wave of the study, but these figures are combined with another study that uh, measured European and American attitudes that I think was conducted in 2010. Okay. There is a little bit of data combined from that sure. survey with this. And so at the very end of our discussion, I'll mention how U.S. attitudes okay. differ.
0: I don't know if you have the numbers in front of you, but uh – uh regarding the condemnation of, of suicide bombers what what is the most liberal number of that
1: 96% condemning Holy it and you find okay. that and you find that in in a lot of these countries and it is the lowest um,
0: number is that kind of what we would assume being like the the Saudi Middle Arabia, East areas? Yeah.
1: yeah well so let me talk about some of the outliers okay. some of the outliers on this data the the most notable ones you're going to find is in the palestinian territories hmm where you have a full 40% saying that suicide bombing is often or sometimes justified. Hmm. Wow. So that's, uh, that's not boding humbling. well for Palestinian-Israeli relationships mm, yeah. there. Uh, Egypt is another outlier. Uh, Egypt has 29% saying these are sometimes justified. Afghanistan, 39%. Bangladesh, 26%. But still, even in these countries, a noticeable and large majority uh, yeah. condemn it and no doubt part of that is due to the fact that a lot of the victims of of extreme violence hmm. like this are muslims themselves apart from the
2: actual suicide bombers yeah who are muslim the people but, that get
1: hurt are also but some yeah. of the suicide bombers are attacking muslims who are Absolutely. not of their particular sect right. uh, or or disagree with their views on various political or religious issues so muslims are probably the chief victims of Muslim violence. And uh, that's reflected in other data in the survey where a vast majority of Muslims say they personally fear violent extremism. They think it's a problem because so often they are, again, the victims of it. So, I mean, that's some of the really good news to come out of this survey. There's not as much endorsement of terrorism in the – Islamic world as y- you might think.
2: Certainly as Fox News would have us yeah, believe.
1: certainly as media portrayals sometimes convince and us. Sam I was just and uh, Sam Harris. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, mm. Sam Harris is going to have fun with this survey too though because yeah, 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 there are definitely. other figures that so do not – So it's not all good is what no, you're saying. No, mm. there's other figures that are not as optimistic. Some of the stuff that's not as encouraging are attitudes in regards to Sharia law. Mm. It does appear that the majority of Muslims worldwide support Sharia law and think it should be the law of the land.
2: But what do they mean by that exactly? That's,
1: that's something that the study
0: mm-hmm. raises is how yeah. uh, you know different – Different Muslims are going to interpret that more broader. Right. In right. a more broad way than others. And, uh, you know, they note that, you know, mm-hmm. Muslim scholars yeah. don't even agree, you know, there's there's constant debate on, on yeah, it's what not, exactly it's is entailed by. It's not like by. the
2: 10 commandments where there right. is a very it's simple a very list of rule and even that would be a exactly. terrible law code. But
1: uh. yeah, well and for people who don't know, I I'm guessing most people who listen to this show know, Sharia law is based on the idea that the prophet led a, a life that served as an example to hmm. everyone. Uh Muhammad was a statesman, not just a prophet. He wrote the and Constitution pedophile. of Medina. He was engaged in political work his entire life and of course uh, his actions then are closely scrutinized to try to derive the ideal set of laws in the Muslim mind that should govern society. So Sharia law applies from anything to domestic matters in the family, uh, resolving family disputes and inheritance rules and that sort of thing. To criminal sanctions against certain actions and it's, it really is a sweeping kind of across the board policy. And, uh, and yes, uh, uh, as was mentioned, Muslims differ as to what exactly Sharia entails and how widely should it be implemented. I guess one of the general things you can say from this survey is that Muslims are way more likely to uh, approve of Sharia Law being implemented in well basically Sharia family law being mm. implemented mm. that's the aspect of Sharia that has the most broad support worldwide now,
2: what does that include that's not some of the the nastier bits of Sharia law
1: depends on whether or not well, you're a woman <laughs> that's, well, I
2: was, that's that's my big question uh, are we talking about you know rape victims being stoned um, women being sold as cattle?
1: yeah well okay so we're gonna uh we're gonna have to i don 't know about the selling as cattle bit, but uh must women obey their husbands at all time right. do they have the must right
2: be covered completely yeah, yeah
1: do they have a right to choose for themselves whether or not to wear the veil mm-hmm. uh, do they have a right to initiate divorce Those are going to be some of the questions that would uh, that would be interesting to Islamic yeah. family law. But as far as generally the rules governing divorce and uh, marriage and proper relationships within the family inheritance and everything, Mm -hmm. um, the majority of Muslims do think that religious judges should be overseeing disputes over Mm. those matters and that's pretty much across the board. Uh, The one region where you don't get a majority there is in uh, southern and eastern Europe. You're going to get – That's not too – Forty-one percent – uh, only 41%, though that's still a pretty considerable number, yeah. mm-hmm. a, are gonna want Sharia family law implemented in that case. Uh, in all the other regions that were surveyed, much larger numbers. Uh, Southeast Asia, for example, is the highest with 84%. Wow. Uh, South Asia, 78%. The Middle East, 78%. Mm-hmm. Other aspects of Sharia law, for example, severe corporal punishments for criminals.
2: Right, the real draconian—chop yeah. off the hand of a, a pickpocket. Yeah, kind or of stuff.
1: severe whippings for public offenses, mm-hmm. or what we would consider minor public offenses, mm. like masturbating on an airplane. <laughs> was that included in the survey? I, I, it, I it should have been. Don't think that was mentioned. Hmm.
2: Weird survey. Sure missed a lot of important stuff.
1: That has less support overall. But in some regions, it ha- still has a stunning amount. For example, in South Asia, you have 81 percent of uh, Muslims support those extreme uh, punishments. The Middle East has 57 percent of people, uh, so just over half, um, supporting those extreme corporal punishments. And all the other regions surveyed are below half. Um, still, though, I mean surprising as many as 36 uh, percent in uh, southern or eastern Europe are Jeez. supporting those those extreme types of punishments, wow. which, yeah, to me is, is shocking. That, that seems high. Perhaps the most disturbing data related to Sharia law, at least to me, I, I, I find this the most disturbing, executing those who leave Islam – Oh. Is it acceptable to kill apostates? Yeah. And, uh, again, the numbers on here are very frightening. Uh, you do overall, and this is, this is something I want to point out to people who are going to read this survey. Um, if you read the executive summary of the survey, they use very vague language that makes it's, while it's technically true, makes things sound better than they actually are Mm. when you go further down in the study and look at the individual graphs on how this breaks out according to region. The executive summary will tell you that killing apostates is something that the majority of Muslims frown upon. And technically that's right. If you pool all the world's Muslims (laughs) and you look at it – You know, But some of the other figures are really, really disturbing. So South Asia for, again, 76 percent of people – … uh, who believe it's right, it's correct to kill apostates. The Middle East, 56%. So above half in the Middle East and North Africa.
2: And then it's in, my guess is Southern and Eastern Europe where the number is way down.
1: Not down enough. 13% of people still in Southern and Eastern Europe. So if you had, if you're living in one of those regions and you have 10 Muslim friends. Unsubscribe are- to our podcast right now. <laughs> <laughs> put a freaking password on your <laughs> You are in danger. Yeah, at least one of them would uh, uh, would think it's OK to kill somebody who left the religion. Yeah, pretty terrifying stuff in some of these countries. It's, it's just staggering. Um, now, granted, I have to qualify this by saying the figures I'm going to be quoting now are the percentage of Muslims who say Sharia should be the law of the land mm-hmm. and – favor the death penalty for people leaving Islam. Hmm. But in many of these regions that I'm going to be quoting figures from, the majority do think Sharia should be the law of the land. So topping the list is Egypt, which is disturbing. I mean we're watching them closely, hoping everything goes OK. <laughs> so now. far
2: the revolution has not gone exactly. The way no, not, not the way not many
1: the had hoped. Uh, in Egypt, 86 percent of people approve the death penalty. Wow. Uh, in Jordan, it's eighty-two percent. In the Palestinian territories, it's sixty-six percent. Afghanistan, almost it's seventy-nine. Pakistan, seventy-six. Those are striking uh, figures. It I'm, is so disturbing. And that, skeptics and that's not, living in those areas.
2: Yeah, that that is not the death penalty as a broad question. Is the death penalty acceptable? Right, right. This is the death penalty for leaving yeah. the religion, not for murder, not for yeah. anything else.
1: It's even worse than that. The survey what? specifically asked extrajudicial executions. Wow. So in other words, this is the percentage of people who would be OK with a lynch mob Blinching. going out yeah. and murdering these people, not even going through some sort of process with oversight.
2: Okay. And people wonder why blasphemy laws are so important.
1: <laughs> yeah. They sure as hell are important oh, in Egypt. Yeah. So that's that's disturbing. Equally disturbing stoning as a punishment for adultery. Again, of Muslims who say Sharia should be the law of the land, mm-hmm. the percentage who favor stoning for uh as a punishment for adultery. Pakistan we're looking at close to ninety percent. Afghanistan eighty five percent. Palestinian territories, eighty four percent, Egypt eighty one. Is this similar in that if it were
0: if you take all of them as a group, is it like less than? It's, it's in minority, those regions in since those regions, the it's a in,
1: since the majority favor Sharia in in uh, in those regions. That is, yeah, that's going to be a pretty significant number. Okay. Now, in other areas, like for example, Russia, you still get twenty six percent saying yes to that question. Um, but that's going to be just the percentage who think Sharia should be the law of the land, which is a much smaller number. The thing that I, jumped out to me as the most predictive of extreme attitudes would be: Do you support Sharia as the law of the land or not? If we are interested in that question, that a lot of skeptics are interested in, you know, is it the religion that is driving extremism? It's the content of the faith: what's in the Quran, what they actually believe, or is it? You know, an accident of politics or something about the culture of the region that's driving extremism. If we're interested in that question, I think we can get some guidance here because acceptance of Sharia law is going to predict, right, extreme views. What predicts Sharia? (laughs) You know, what's causing people to support Sharia law? And there seems to be two things that are very strongly predictive of that. One is going to be whether or not the the region or the country currently has a constitution that allows church-state entanglements that favors Muslims over other religions. In countries that, that, that do, support for Sharia law is very strong.
2: So we're talking Saudi Arabia, the new Egypt to right. some extent. Um, mm-hmm.
1: Countries with a long, long history of those entanglements yeah. –
2: because they already have Sharia law, so they support Sharia law as the law of the land. Because to some extent, they they do.
1: That's not exactly true, because in many of these countries, there's also a breakdown of uh, do they think the country follows it enough? Ah, oh. and uh, and so That's and and point. many of them many of them think it doesn't. For example, in Turkey, where they've had a they've had a secular constitution for most of the last century. Yeah. There's really only 12% of people who feel that Sharia law should be the law of the land. So it's still a fairly low number, but it's, but it's, it's very low. That, that seems to be the, that seems to be the biggest, Mm -hmm. the biggest difference. Uh, if, if you're, if you're already living in a society that's been secularized and you see it doesn't make the nation go to hell, you can practice your religion freely and everything else, people are more comfortable with that and they, they don't want those extra restrictions. Mm We could say that's a clear political influence, approval of Sharia law is so closely tied to the own, your own political history of your local region or country. Yeah. I, I, I think you can say that's pretty clearly a political influence on, on this. There is an aspect of religion that correlates with support of Sharia law too and uh, that is the frequency of prayer frequency of prayer is going to be a measure of your religiosity right right to, to what what's your commitment to the faith because mm-hmm.
2: you're supposed to pray five times a day mm-hmm. is that correct yeah and, and some Muslims do and, and
1: observant Muslims, Muslims do who do the five times a day prayer are overwhelmingly in support of okay. of mm-hmm. these uh, Sharia law well, there you go. and yeah. less observant Muslims, surprising, you know, not surprising. so the more secular
2: Muslims are less in favor of it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Well, that makes sense. Yes, it does. Is there a breakdown of of gender in this, by the way?
1: Well, and that's one of the interesting things. Uh, We could also look at what doesn't predict this, Mm. and I, I think those figures are just as telling. What doesn't predict this is gender. That's one. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Gender overall. I mean, there might be. Again, we're talking about thirty-nine countries here, yeah, and yeah. Uh, but overall, yeah, gender doesn't seem to be predictive yeah. of this. Age doesn't seem to be predictive of this. Really? Majority. That, see, that's that's that sad to me, me. because. Yeah. Yeah.
2: You look at a lot of the social problems in this country, and you have you have them weaning the old guard that uh, you know is anti gay marriage, et, et cetera, and then the right. younger folks are are more progressive in. in they those don't regards. see
1: that promising trend. Apparently. Yeah,
2: not not having it in the Muslim world. <laughs>
1: majority status isn't predictive either. I found that surprising. Mm. You have uh, countries where you have a majority of Muslims; they may make up more than ninety percent of the population. Right. Uh, Azerbaijan, eight but you know, for example. But uh only eight percent there are gonna support Sharia. Wow. But then you have countries where they're less uh, Muslims are less than a fifth of the population, Congo, Ghana, Kenya. And you have support uh, amongst Muslims almost fifty-two anywhere from fifty-two percent to seventy-four percent supporting wonder, Sharia law. I wonder if that's a, so a, a majority, oppressed minority
2: kind of mentality at least. Uh,
1: yeah I'm not sure, but things
2: I'm- would be better if. If our laws were the law of the land. It could be.
1: But I I don't know. But yeah, it's, it's the one thing we can say is it's, it's not predictive. It's not like Mm -hmm. if you get a completely, you know, Muslim dominance in society, it's not necessarily going to result in Sharia law. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. a small percentage is not going to necessarily mean that people don't want that. Another. It does mean
2: they're less likely to get it. So that's, that's something.
1: Perhaps the most disturbing in the list of not predictive here is education. That's what Ooh. bothered me. Really was no difference. If you're looking at somebody who's received no education or somebody who's gone past high school or a graduate, you know, undergrad degree, there's just no difference. Holy They're just as supportive of this. That's I, depressing as hell That's yeah. very depressing. Jesus. I mean that's the kind of thing we bank on is the right. – as Darwin would say, the gradual illumination of the mind yeah. will get rid of dogma in this way and, and it's just not happening in the Muslim world. So
2: wow, you're really bumming me yeah, out here. This a lot. is a really sad study.
1: Pretty dark. Oh, oh man, you, uh, you want to be more bummed out? Oh let's, no. <laughs> let's <laughs> talk about women for a oh, moment. Oh,
0: no. Please,
2: did they even address homosexuality in here? Cause I, oh yeah, I yeah, don't yeah. Want to, Oh man,
1: uh, the the charts. There are charts on. Um, it doesn't matter how moderate you are or how fundamentalist you are. Pretty much about across the board, homosexuality, alcohol consumption.
2: Basically the same thing. One <laughs> leads to another, uh, at least if you're in a frat. Uh.
1: Yeah, across the board, those things are, are pretty much considered by – most Muslims worldwide mm. to be immoral. You have a slight dip when it comes to premarital sex and alcohol in the South European <laughs> <Right>. population. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also sub-Saharan mm. Africa, oddly enough. Oh, really? Much more tolerant of, of sex at least.
2: Unprotected sex, of course.
1: Because, yeah, but I mean the numbers right. there are like 90 versus 70 saying uh, it's geez. immoral. So it's not that big of a difference.
2: So, OK, women – I don't want to hear it. But we have to hear it. What did the study find about? Uh,
1: I already talked about stoning as a – Yeah.
2: stone. And when you talk about stoning as a form of punishment for adultery, we're primarily talking about stoning the woman involved, right?
1: Well, that was I one of the interesting so. things that this uh, survey teased out. They looked at, for example, the case of honor killings. And, and this is not even just adultery. This could be including instances where children shame – or uh, or some member of the family shames the rest of the family. So should mm. they be killed? The figures here – well, here they're stated in the negative. Uh, I have a chart in front of me that's talking about the percentage who say it's never justified. Honor killings are never justified. Those Those figures can be significantly different for people who are – who favor Sharia or oppose Sharia. So once again, okay. that mm-hmm. thing predicts extremism. Yeah. Those who p- oppose Sharia, for example –
2: are opposed to honor killing?
1: The lowest figure you're going to get there is 63 percent who say it's it's never justified. That's okay. that's the lowest figure, and that's in Lebanon. The highest figure that you're going to get is 89 Kazakhstan wow. who oppose Sharia. Those who favor are much lower. Uh, some cases it's a 40 point difference. Uh, Albania, for example, uh, there's a there's a 40 percent difference between those who favor Sharia and those who oppose Sharia on that matter. So again, that's, that's a question that's very predictive. In fact, the lowest point difference here is in Russia where there's a 13-point difference. That's still wow. a huge difference in attitude depending on where you fall on that. But it's even more interesting when you break it down according to gender – If you were to ask the question, it's never justified when a female stands accused Mm -hmm. to punish her by honor killings versus a male. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. In some cases, you get no difference of opinion.
2: Well, that's something.
1: (laughs) But for example, and this is most pronounced in the Middle East and North Africa. Mm -hmm. In Jordan, for example, 81 percent of of Muslims would say it's never right to – do a uh, honor killing when it's a male committing the offense, but only thirty four percent. Oh my god! Holy, that's, that's a forty seven point difference.
2: Fifty percent difference almost yeah. Yeah. on whether it's okay now, to uh, do an honor killing on a man. Versus now, granted,
1: man. that's the most extreme case. Yeah. The point differences are much smaller. There are a few instances: Kosovo, Thailand, Morocco where there's actually a, a negative difference where people really? are a little b- slightly harsher on the the males there than the females but in almost all cases so strange, it's right? either no difference or yeah. a positive difference I wonder uh,
2: what what's going on in those countries what honor killing well, is slightly more acceptable Yeah
1: Thailand at least I mean they're you know a minority uh mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know if that has if that would have that big of an impact Yeah I yeah, I, don't I, I really that's, don't know that, either That's an interesting one because um, those are from all different regions, Morocco and yeah. and Thailand and That's Kosovo. It's not like they're right next to no, each other. No, no. Right. So I wonder, Well, I
2: don't know. I'm an American geography student. I'm not actually sure, but
1: uh, if you say so. Egypt, very disturbing. Um, only 31 percent are going to be against honor killings in the case of, of women. It just blows my mind. <laughs> you You have – Seventy some odd percent of the of the country who just thinks that's fine. Yeah. If a If yeah. a family member shames you, it's cool to.
2: And and that can be something from you know getting married when you're not a virgin or yeah. you you just Marrying, don't have a hymen. Which uh, uh,
1: in in India, you know, that we've had a couple of cases recently where a girl was just seen going to a bar with somebody who was a Hindu, yeah. and that was you know that's reason that's I'm it. Not. <clears throat> even though again though the the broad figures if you consider all muslims taken as a group you know the majority are going to be against honor killings
2: right so S- still
1: we see some pretty heavy concentrations in in some of these regions i mean it really it's really heavily dependent on on the region yeah gosh i mean do i even need to go on I should say something briefly about American Muslim attitudes yeah. and how they differ from the rest of the that's world. That's got to be better, right? Yes, it, it, incredibly better. Really? <laughs> yes. Um, American Muslims are far more likely – and here's some probably some causal roles too. Far more likely to have close friends who don't share their faith. Hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, that yeah. the, yeah. makes sense. This This blew me away. Uh, American Muslims are more likely than Muslims in other parts of the world to say that multiple religions can lead to salvation. Wow. And that number was 56%. Over half of Muslims wow. really break from the Quran. I was gonna say, that, that is, <laughs> I mean, maybe not when it comes to people of the book, but anything outside yeah. of the Abrahamic traditions, you know, uh, they're really breaking with tradition there. But yeah, over half are willing to, willing to say that. Uh, the global median percentage of that is eighteen percent. So, so this is um,
2: a huge leap from eighteen yeah. percent.
1: Here is some interesting ones. A majority of Muslims in the U.S. almost sixty percent say that there is not really a conflict between science and religion. Uh, and actually, that's that's pretty close to the world figure. About fifty-four uh, percent globally of Muslims would say that too. That's comparable to Christians too.
2: I was going to say, they yeah. all say that. And
1: here's the other part Partly that's Partly comparab- not knowing yep. science makes that really yeah. easy. Yep, it, it, You hit the nail on the head <laughs> yeah, there, Dave, because to- here's another one. Uh, uh. American Muslims are somewhat less likely to believe in evolution than are <sighs> Muslims in other parts of the world. Forty-five hmm. percent uh, for Americans, a global mean of 53 percent. America! The, yeah. the report says, indeed, when it comes to evolution, U.S. Muslims are closer to U.S. Christians, forty-six <laughs> percent. Ooh, a full point better! Wow, uh, uh, good job, Christians, yeah. <laughs> than they are to fellow Muslims elsewhere in the world. Uh, so, yeah, and and oh, so this kind of country the country is so stupid. Yeah, I know. <laughs> We're making Muslims more anti-science yeah, over here. Yeah. That's isn't that great. Yeah, and and a, a side note on that. For these are religion and science compatible debates, Mm -hmm. I just think that's important for skeptics to keep in mind. Uh, The majority of Muslims and Christians do say – who say that science and religion are compatible also have very anti-science views. They have no – they don't know (laughs) science. (laughs) So don't let ever – let anybody pull that statistic on you. Of course religion and science are compatible. The majority of religious people think so. Only you atheists are pushing that. Well, look at to what the other things they believe too. Yeah. Uh, but as far as violence is concerned, American Muslims are even more likely than Muslims in other countries to reject violence in the name of Islam. Uh, in the US, 81 percent of Muslims say that suicide bombing and similar acts are never justified. Yeah. Uh, we need to get that number up, folks. Yeah. Uh, 81, yeah. but it is better than the global average. Yeah, OK. The global average is seventy-two percent that would agree with that statement. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so you know, eight and ten Muslims versus seven and ten Muslims. But hey, something take it we'll, where we we'll can take get that it. extra guy. Yep, and or uh, lady. Oh yeah, she doesn't get to say anything. About <laughs>
2: Well, if you're not ready to give up yet, I should um, wait. Wait, you
1: know, I kind of feel bad. I was, I was kind of, I focused a lot on the negative parts. I know. You, there you, are some good. You came into this yeah. saying
2: there's a mixed bag, and it was like <laughs> no, there's the shit on two. <laughs> yeah. There's two M and Ms in the pile of shit you <laughs> came. <on>. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know,
1: but there. I mean, there are something like like one thing that I should have mentioned in the context of Sharia is mm-hmm. that while. Uh, while the majority of Muslims would support Sharia being the law of the land, um, there's that same majority also thinks that religious uh, that that should apply to Muslims only. Oh, uh, so there are uh, okay. there are a lot that would accept uh, religious freedom, not in those not in the regions where we really need it. Right. <laughs> right. Um, you know, um, but so if
2: a Muslim guy steals your wallet, you can chop off his hands.
1: Yeah. But you yeah. can't okay. drive Uh actually I I'm I'd have to look at the data and see how it breaks down, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was mostly concerning family law. I, yeah, that I'm guess be, guessing guess. criminal law provisions yeah. of Sharia would still be implemented mm-hmm. on everyone. Uh, but I but again I'm not positive. But as far as
2: yeah, divorce law and that sort of thing, it makes sense that yeah. they would only the need to apply that to yeah. Well, anyways, uh, do
1: if you're interested in this data, do uh, check it out. Uh, we'll have a link to it at our website to the the full report. You can get uh, you can get just charts and charts and charts and charts on how this breaks down.
2: Well, let's move on to. Uh Something less depressing. In our last episode, we started our series on martyrdom with uh, an interview with – I'm blanking
1: Candida Moss of uh, Candida. Notre Dame. Yeah. Candida Moss's argument was martyrdom in the first couple centuries of the Christian church is just a completely overblown phenomenon. If you can say there was state-sanctioned systematic persecutions of Christians, it, it – uh, It was only it was, as a – they were a kind
0: of um, collateral damage essentially. It wasn't as though the persecution was aimed at Christians.
1: Right. They were just affected by Everyone it. Everyone
2: was affected by it, it, was it was including aimed at, Christians.
1: It was aimed at people who wouldn't support the Roman cult.
2: It wasn't mm-hmm. political as opposed to religious. Yeah. Right. That You could aimed.
1: have your gods but you got to pay homage to us to mm-hmm. show that you uh, endorse our – political system. Right. right. And Christians a- fell outside of that. And, uh, that most of the stories of martyrs uh, were, um, concocted. They were taken from earlier writings. They show mythic elements, uh, that are similar to Greek and Roman mythology. And also strange details like the fact that many Christians loved the idea of an honorable death so much that Christians who were not persecuted sometimes lined up in the hundreds Asking to be martyred (laughs) by people who had no interest in taking their lives.
2: It's nice to live in the 21st century where you can pay somebody to do that. When I
0: when I first read that part in her book, I I literally laughed out loud because I'm thinking (laughs) this is the argument we're hearing. You know, like. That these people were hunted down, but no, you ha- you have them hunting the uh, persecutors down yeah. to try and.
1: It's like that scene in Monty Python's it's The just, Life of that's Brian, what I was I was thinking where too. you have the the Suicide Squad. But uh, anyways, when when you start hearing stuff like that, hey, they they were lining up to martyr themselves and they had to find somebody who wanted to kill them right. <laughs> and had trouble doing so, you can't help but to think of that other apologetic argument that's tied to martyrdom that we do hear an awful lot, uh, yes. the notion that no one would ever die for a lie. The notion that Jesus' resurrection is more probable when we consider the fact that so many of the members of the early church who could have witnessed his his resurrection were willing to die as martyrs, and this would include, right, uh, many of the 12 disciples of Jesus. We thought that was a very interesting kind of side argument related to this myth of martyrdom, and so we're going to take on the why would anyone die for a lie argument on today's Counter-Apologetics. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for Counter-Apologetics.
0: Recently, we received an email request uh, from Paul, a listener uh, asking about the die-for-a-lie argument, right? Mm -hmm. So these early uh, apostles, right, these 12 that followed Jesus around, the ones that were in a position to know whether or not Jesus really did resurrect from the dead, mm-hmm. you know, they wouldn't be making up these stories and then going to their deaths with them.
2: Even if they made up the stories, even mm-hmm. if if they did that – at some point when the gun is to their head, right. they're going to say, OK, OK, you're right. This is <laughs> this is just a goof. We're pulling your leg.
0: Exactly. Don't kill me. So yeah. when I first came across this argument, uh, I was reading uh, Lee Strobel's book, A Case for Christ, which was the book, hmm. the book, and I still have the very copy, which was uh, purchased for me by my parents the day they found out that I was having doubts. So I had a very, <laughs> very close personal relationship <laughs> with Mr. Lee Strobel. And so I – Dusted that awesome. book off mm-hmm. this past week, and I I reread it, and uh, suddenly it didn't seem as compelling <laughs> as, it, as it used to. Um, Although obviously it didn't work uh, right when you first got it. Either. So so in that book, Lee Strobel, uh, he's a reporter, right? And he wants to you know approach the
1: resurrection. That's his stick. I'm a journalist. Right. I'm going to investigate this as a journalist would.
0: So he's trying to you know bring this this uh, this air of objectivity mm-hmm. to his investigation and uh, so he goes around interviewing various scholars they all happen to be every single one of them apologists um, to say what, well, what is really the evidence out there that that Jesus you know did what he uh, did what we happen to believe that he did right mm-hmm. one of the people he interviews is, is JP Moreland uh, JP is I believe a, a philosopher out of Biola University same place uh, William Lane Craig He's one of the better that.
1: apologists in my opinion Yeah,
0: I, I would agree um, and uh, so in, in that book he, he's asked about this and he says uh, they, the disciples were willing to spend the rest of their lives proclaiming this the resurrection mm-hmm. uh, without any payoff from a human point of view it's not as though there was a mansion awaiting them on the Mediterranean they faced a life of hardship they often went without food slept exposed to the elements were ridiculed beaten imprisoned and finally most of them were executed in torturous ways. For what? Good intentions? No, because they believed or because they were convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that they had seen Jesus Christ rise from the dead. Hmm. People die for things that aren't true all the time, Hmm. right? Uh, 9-11 hijackers, right? Different religions,
1: people dying all the time for these things. No shortage of religious zealots dying for something that's – Patently absurd. Right,
2: and even even uh, political zealots too. We right. have right. plenty of terrorists and other people who are willing to die for – I mean these guys who go with a, a pile of guns into a, a crowded
0: place are right. often expecting to die and it's not – Right, and so we need to be a bit more careful with the argument. That's not quite what the apologist is saying. Uh, Warner Wallace in his new book, Cold Case Christianity, writes, There's an important distinction that needs to be made here. You and I might die for what we believe today, trusting in the testimony of those who were witnesses of events a thousand years ago. We were not there to see Jesus ourselves, but we may believe that we have good reason to accept their testimony. Our martyrdom would therefore be a demonstration of trust Hmm. rather than a confirmation of truth. And then he goes on. Uh, while it's reasonable to believe that you and I might die for what we mistakenly thought was true it is unreasonable to believe that these men died for what they definitely knew to be untrue right right now it's important to note that this argument is actually in response to the claim that most of the 12 disciples knowingly lied about the resurrection uh, rather than you know somehow genuinely Came to believe it, right? Right, because it's real
2: easy to believe that they would uh, allow themselves to be killed and persecuted for something that they
1: genuinely believe,
0: right? Even you know, even if you know if they had an experience, they interpreted as that, right? It, right, right.
1: I mean, it, th- and the disciples were in a place to know that what exactly. they were saying right. was a lie, and, and that's the. I think that's the crux of the argument, mm-hmm. and al- also this notion that there are multiple examples here. You know, when it comes to one individual person. Some people are crazy. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. And when we're talking about an individual, David Koresh, for yes, example, probably knew. Jim Jones. Right. Yeah. That he was a, that he was a, you know, he was a fake mm-hmm. and a fraud. He might have deluded himself into believing. Uh, but oh, the impossible. idea is while well, one person might die for a lie or, uh, or one person might delude themselves into believing mm-hmm. something that was, uh, that they could have known was a lie was actually true, Um, We have multiple disciples here, right? We have at least 12 people who are willing to die for a lie and there may have been even more witnesses to the resurrection. It's
2: absurd to imagine that one charismatic religious leader could gather around himself 12 crazy people. I mean that's never (laughs) –
0: if we assume they were sane, That never happened. But the the plausibility of that must be sensitive to the number of people involved in it. Now – this argument requires that we have reliable and detailed knowledge about the deaths of mm-hmm. all or most or at least some of these disciples. Right. Um, that we is should necess- know who died, right. how they we died. We should
1: know specifically that they died because of their belief in the resurrection yes. and right. not some sort of politics of the scene mm-hmm. or something else that was going on.
0: And that they would have some kind of opportunity to recant because sure. if they're just being attacked for because they believe this – I mean, it's all right. a fake and they were killed anyway. I was that's kidding. obviously not yes. interesting. Mere martyrdom here I don't <laughs> think is sufficient for it. Martyrdom meaning simply that they died for being Christians, right? right? Even if they were targeted for their specific belief that they had, that's not sufficient. It must be martyrdom plus a kind of voluntary martyrdom uh, in that they had an opportunity to not and they died with the cause. Yes,
2: and having been a witness – to the events or the non-events as it were. That's significant. Right. That these are people who- Yeah, that they actually
1: claim to have encountered the yes. resurrected Christ. Yes. Uh, um, because again, if we're dealing with somebody who didn't see the resurrected Christ and is just trusting trust other people's the others, testimony, yeah. then that's more like the hijackers in that scenario. They're exactly. dying because of something they are trusting instead of their death isn't any kind of confirmation. Mm-hmm. And that it would the have to be-
0: Really happen. So for instance, Paul. Paul wasn't there or never right. claims to have seen the risen, physical risen Jesus. Right, right? He, right. He, he experienced a vision. Yes. So Paul, being martyred, even in the most grotesque way, mm-hmm. wouldn't uh, provide any strength to this argument. Right,
1: right. right. It's not – he didn't see his flesh. He wasn't like Thomas who put yes. his fingers in the holes of Jesus' hands. Uh, you it's got to
0: be the
2: old school, original gangsters. Actual witnesses, right. yeah. Disciples. original gangsters.
0: <laughs> and and so for the same reason that Paul is disqualified
1: and uh, I, I'm also gonna strike from this list uh, Stephen uh, one of the first martyrs for mm. Christianity mm. Stephen is executed mm. in acts 7 he's the very first to die for the Christian faith uh, in, in the biblical account I'm not going to take away from him being a courageous person and a martyr and all that I think you know if, if the accounts of what happened are true, then he deserves that. But Stephen is never na- named as a witness of the resurrected Christ. He was not an apostle, he was a deacon. He was appointed later by the church to take care of the poor so the apostles could have time to run their ministries. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if you look at the circumstances surrounding his martyrdom, it has nothing to do with his belief in the resurrection. We're we're narrowing it down to to what the tradition says was, yes, uh, Mm -hmm. 11 people. Mm -hmm. And um, actually, I want to add one more caveat on this. Now, in in looking for evidence of these martyrs, who they are, why they died and everything else... Mm -hmm. I think it's reasonable to not give as much credence to sources made in the late second, third, fourth century. So we're looking centuries. for contemporary sources. Yeah. Or we should relatively. be looking for some people who could have been living in the time of Jesus or contemporaries of those who did live in that time. We yes. should be looking for first century sources or, uh, you know, early second century sources because as was noted in the interview, there actually isn't a lot of these martyrdom stories in circulation until about the third or fourth century. This is about the time uh, when there is a huge demand now for stories yes. of martyrdom, mm-hmm. and so we have a plethora of texts that have very, uh, very elaborate and ingenious <laughs> stories yeah. and gruesome ones about how these people died. But the thing is, they're written so af- so long after the events. And, uh, not only that, there are signs, right, that these, these were, uh, these were made up. Uh, as was discussed in the interview, they are sometimes pulling from earlier sources and... There are anachronisms. There are anachronisms a lot of times, or the church fathers themselves, their accounts, uh, disagree, you know, as to Mm -hmm. how these people died or whether or not they even were martyred. I think John is, uh, the disciple John is one of those cases where the church fathers don't have agreement as to whether or not he was actually martyred. And you can see martyred. why
2: they would at you know in the what third or fourth century CE, why they would uh, the church would go let's let's generate stories for each of these disciples yeah. because people want to know what happened to John and right. he he's a great one to set up as an example. Right. It could have happened to him. Who's to say it didn't? Right. So we create the story and it, that, that
1: fits. And in some cases – I mean we've mentioned this on the show before in the context of uh, Relics – Right. Hmm. Uh you know, if if you have a piece of the original I cross, say that. Yep. you have so many people coming into your churches. I mean the joke at the time of the Enlightenment was there were so many pieces of the original cross spread throughout Europe that you could build Noah's Ark with them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, it, it's not all that different for stories of martyrdom. If you have mm-hmm. if you have sects that happen to esteem, you know, we come from John. Yes. you know, John started our church. You know, it's or even churches
2: that can say, you know, John was martyred here, right? You know, right. I mean, that's it's so you're essentially have, the same. Oh as yeah, that, I mean, we're seeing Bartholomew.
1: We're mm-hmm. Bartholomew was yes, supposedly that's right. executed. There's, I mean, there's a huge uh, temple built on that. Mm-hmm. There, there were other incentives to create or elaborate on a tradition, and and just you know other clues from the texts themselves that they may not be reliable. Uh, some of those later stories are interesting to address, and we might actually talk about them on the next episode. But for the re- for the moment now, we're going to limit ourselves to first or early second century sources. And uh, when you do that, surprise, there's really not a lot of evidence. It's a short list. Yeah, I know. I, I hope this isn't the most anticlimactic <laughs> counter apologetics ever. But I, I will I will reveal the crux of my argument is just where's the data on these people. Let me share with you a small list of people that you can make a case from those early sources, can be identified, and were martyred for their faith. And In fact, Justin and I are going to be borrowing heavily from a uh, Christian apologetic blog that we've had some interaction with on in the past. Oh, no. Try a blog. Am I saying that right? I think that's <laughs> how you say it, but I'm not exactly sure. Is this
0: the one guy –
1: yeah, he's a, uh,
0: one, a different, same blog, different
1: writer. Oh, so, yeah, same okay. blog, different right. writer. Did like a four or five piece yeah. sweeping refutation of our presuppositionalist, uh, in which he didn't
2: listen to the episodes. Yeah, in yeah, which, yeah. in which
1: it was, it was one of those uh, rare moments where, where we looked at it, and we're like. I'm sorry there's just not enough here to even do a refutation. I was going to
2: say and didn't they demand a response and it, it
1: was oh yeah it was it was a lot of chest beating and, yeah. and stuff like that and you know my ego wants to take on every single one of these people and just grind them into the ground right into yeah. total dust. I don't mind so much until when they personally attack our integrity. Mm-hmm. And as you know, presuppositionalists, that's usually their first line of attack. Of course. Is to poison the well yep. and to accuse people of lying and misrepresentation, as this guy did. And but you know, the other side has to go, look, sometimes these critiques have no substance. Yep. And you're just playing into them to actually answer them. We I, have lives and we have careers and everything else. Are you gonna waste all that time taking that down? I, I'm usually so, the
2: one who's saying Look, it's not worth it. No, no one reads this guy's blog. No one who reads this blog is going to uh, you aren't, be you, persuaded by anything. You are but, usually
1: along that line, though. Every once in a while, I every see once you in a while, get, you, know, oh, you, know, you know, you woke up on the wrong side of the I bed do. that morning, just, and you're going to tear one of these. And guys I always one. hate myself for it. I do, <laughs> I do too. I do too. I just feel like crap. And and you know what? After doing
2: that, and this is again, this is off subject, but it takes away our energy mm-hmm. to respond to uh, our listeners. To the people who actually appreciate what we do and have legitimate questions and all of that.
1: Nevertheless, they, uh, they have some very active people there at Triblog. Some of this information is going to be from uh, Jason Ingwer uh, and his uh, five-part series on how do we know the apostles died as martyrs. Uh, the, the first thing I want to say is, even though I'm going to be trying to tear this to shreds in just a couple of seconds, is I think Jason made a valiant attempt i I do want to give these guys credit where they're due uh, We have so many apologists right, who just advance these claims, McDowell, like you said, mm-hmm. or actually, I think you referenced trouble, but McDowell would be in the same list right. uh, will just put forward without any backing it up. Well, of course, these eleven disciples died, not really pay attention to the sources, how credible they are. I feel that Jason actually did that in his in his writing here. I felt that he showed constraint in what he wanted to use as his source material. He basically agrees with us and says that the most reliable stuff you're going to get is from the first and second centuries. Mm. You know, a lot of apologists, if it comes from the non-canonical gospels, they'll say, oh, it's a late date. We need to exclude this. Right. right. But when it comes to church fathers, they'll gladly (laughs) go, Hey, you know, late date. No problem. Right. And Jason here is showing some consistency here. Laying out a, a careful argument for for his claims here, and he's not uh, in most of it. He's not expecting us to take a faith position on the matter to see that his arguments are true. Uh, so, I want to give him props for that, even if we're going to be critiquing it the rest of the mm-hmm. uh, session. But he and uh, he brings out he does a great job of summarizing what are some of the cases that we have from the Bible and first century sources as to who died. And let me read the list. Well, he doesn't mention Stephen, but I did, mm-hmm. and uh, he mentions Paul. We're excluding them for reasons already mentioned. Uh, to that, he adds James, uh, the apostle, mm-hmm. and that this is based on biblical evidence, mm. that we have John, uh, the apostle, that there are some early church fathers plus uh, some references within the scriptures themselves that hint at his death. We have James, the brother of John, who is also apostle. And his martyrdom is attested to in Josephus. We have Peter. We have evidence from early first church Clement. fathers, First Clement, Ignatius, giving uh, evidence for Peter's martyrdom. But first thing to say, that's it. That's it. Our list so far: James is five people. James,
2: John, James, Peter, James, John, and Paul, James, but Peter, we're cut it to- and and Paul. But we drop he, Paul because but he's Paul not actually
0: Paul didn't uh, yeah.
1: witness the resurrection. This, this
0: list, he's, he's primarily arguing that we have good reasons for knowing about the deaths of them. He's not advancing mm-hmm. sure. his argument, but of course, the argument would require uh, having that they were seen martyred. the physical Jesus, and right. That would yeah. eliminate Paul.
1: So let's uh, let's start going through these. I, I mean, uh, that's not a whole lot. No, <laughs> not the way the apologists usually frame it as just you know. Gosh, hundreds of these people, right? Saw or all Jesus eleven of the original right.
2: disciples, right. Had similar faiths. and these yeah. are
1: the ones that we have evidence for. Now, I mean, the thing that we should say mm-hmm. is a lot of this is just absence of evidence. They're just, of course, <laughs> we don't have consistent lists throughout the go- throughout the Gospels of who the disciples even are. <laughs> there are contradictions there, or at least discrepancies as far as uh, what names are listed. Uh, but almost none of them are talked about at all. We just don't have yeah. details of the majority. You get a
2: lot of Peter. You, you get, get a lot of Judas. A
1: lot of Peter. And a lot of Judas. A little bit about John. Yep. You know, a few shout-outs to James. And We Thomas, could talk about, could talk about the
0: death of Judas, but we already did that. Yeah, we covered Judas. Yeah, doing Judas great. doesn't
1: make things look good for them. No. <laughs> so um, part of this is just a complete absence of evidence. Yeah. So who knows? There might have been a lot of people that were martyred, but but – we can't assume that was the case right. we just don't have any evidence to to claim it and it seems kind of silly to assume mm-hmm. that if they were disciples they must have been martyred they must
2: have died horribly but anyways yeah.
1: let's go through the through the evidence for what they do have first we'll start with james this is this to me is the best the best case they have mm. because in acts 12 james is killed by herod so it's reported. This is James not the same
2: Herod who tried to kill Jesus as a baby. Uh, he would have been dead by then. He also would have been dead by the time Jesus was born. But that's beside the point. And he also didn't try to – he didn't kill babies. No, this is – but you, but you know, all. Herods
1: have a kind of yeah, a lot long of history yeah, of yeah. not being very nice people.
2: That's, that's true.
1: Acts 12 simply pronounces that James was killed by Herod by the sword. It doesn't say anything else. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Did he have a chance to recant? We don't know. Was he killed specifically for his he, belief in the resurrected Christ? He could have Been sleeping with her daughter.
2: It could have been. You know. You know. We, we don't get specific. Uh, and and, we,
1: and I should say this is relevant. I mean, some there are going to be some Christians listening to this going. Of course, he was killed by hair. Why else would he die except for that? No, 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 no. Open up your Bibles and go to Acts chapter six and seven and read about the martyrdom of Stephen. Mm-hmm. Read about. Why he died. He was taken before the Sanhedrin, not because of anything that he even believed, but because of lies that were made about him. False witnesses who said that he blasphemed against Moses and he blasphemed against the temple. And his speech – that enrages the Pharisees and causes them to pick up stones mm-hmm. and hurl them at them. Almost like it wasn't premeditated. Almost like they just, in this moment, there just happened to be stones they were there. Just so yeah. angry that they had to grab these stones. Paperweights, probably. His speech mm-hmm. does not mention the resurrection of Jesus. Right. What he talks about was Moses was a great prophet, and you killed him. Mm-hmm. You know, people like you killed Moses. Right. And then he said, as far as the temple is concerned. The Most High does not dwell in, is, is, He does not dwell in earthly places Mm -hmm. like this. Uh, so He's basically, He is making the charge that God doesn't live in the most holy of places within the temple. Which isn't what Moses would say, but... Yeah, (laughs) no, it's not what the (laughs) Old Testament would say either, so He was, they were right as far as Him being blasphemous about that one. Uh, so that's
2: the reason he's stoned, and, and he, we're not even counting him. He
1: ends the story by mentioning Jesus mm-hmm. as a righteous one, but he doesn't say anything about him being, you know, God. the king of the Jews, yeah. God, or resurrected. He calls him a prophet. He basically says, You killed this prophet, and people like you have been killing our prophets for mm-hmm. the entire history. Yeah. And that's so what's chill down, out, on. essentially. So, in other words, Stephen was not killed for anything to do with his belief in the resurrection.
2: And that's that's the the right. best documented yeah. of the group.
1: It's the longest speech in the entire book of Acts. Is we don't really? have a longer speech from any of the apostles mm-hmm. or or anything else like that. The the most amount of words on a page that you get is, is from Stephen, Stephen, a deacon of the church. Mm-hmm. Who's falsely accused. It, who doesn't say As, anything about yeah, the resurrection. Doesn't say anything. So, so we shouldn't assume that just because an apostle gets the sword, that, that it's because why. he believed it in the resurrected Jesus. And furthermore to, to this, after James is killed in that passage, his death is only brought up to explain why Peter is imprisoned.
0: Yeah, here's the passage. Oh, really? uh, about, your, about that time, King Herod laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. He had James, the brother of John, killed with the sword. After he saw that, it pleased the Jews. Then he arrested – he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Get that? These are political motivations. Peter's
1: arrest is because after he kills one of these Christians, he suddenly realizes, hey, this is making me popular with my uh, Mm -hmm. constituents. Yeah. And that's why he imprisons Peter. Okay, so that's James martyred, but we don't know why. Mm-hmm. We don't know that it was over the resurrection or anything else. Peter is mentioned as being imprisoned there, but he is not martyred in this passage. Uh he is persecuted, certainly,
2: he, for yeah, his beliefs.
1: Yeah. But, being put in jail. Mm-hmm. That counts as persecution. Yes. That right there is the best biblical evidence of an apostle who died.
0: Uh he also goes goes on to um cite a few other references in, in the – Jason Ingwar, he, the author of Trial Blog here. Right. He goes on to mention uh, Matthew 20, 18 through 19 and Mark 10, 33 to 34. These are explaining the same narrative.
1: Well, he uses these passages to back up the idea that James – and then he adds even John, the disciple John right. – might have been killed as as martyrs for – specifically for their – uh, belief in Jesus. Yeah. And the reason why is because in those passages, well basically the scenario is that uh, both uh, James and John come up and ask if they can have a place at uh Jesus's side. This at, is
2: post resurrection or pre resurrection? Uh pre resurrection, but okay. they're
1: saying like in the kingdom of heaven yeah. can we rule? It might have even might have even been one of their moms. I'm No, I'm no, here's the thing. On the in context. Mark
0: they they ask, right? They go up. Okay. Those two individuals ask. But in Matthew... You have their mother asking for them.
1: <laughs> I love it. Whenever, <laughs> whenever, I'm, like, whenever I'm trying to remember the New Testament, I always have moments like these where I go like, well, it was either them or their mom. And then like half the time I'm right. It's both. <laughs> you know, it's, you know both. it's just like the authors didn't know. Yeah. But yeah, so so they're they're arguing for this and and Jesus says to them.
0: Right. He, he says, uh, are, are you prepared to drink from the cup or whatever, right? You know, like, the oh, cup. I'll,
1: I'll drink from your cup. The cup, no of problem. course. You oh, don't backwash you know. a lot. Yeah. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the cup is, a, no of course, in reference to uh, Jesus' words in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, take this cup from me or depending on what gospel you're reading. right? You know, the
1: cup is an analogy for suffering For or suffering and death. Um, yeah. So it's, of course, it's
0: him saying, are you willing to suffer for it? Yeah. Are yeah. you willing to suffer and die for this? Mm-hmm. And they um, say
1: they will. Right. And Jesus Which, said, you will drink from my cup. <laughs> you are going <laughs> to die, sonny boy is it but by any chance a milkshake in there it's up to daddy it's up to daddy who gets to chew, who gets to be on my right or left side
0: yeah yeah, yeah that's essentially what, what what's said huh. maybe i'm not following his argument but i don't
1: see how mm-hmm. that what he is saying here is that jesus prophesied they would uh end up so we up being have to martyred. accept
0: prophecy to in order for an argument about the truth of the resurrection to go through. Right. Well,
1: he's 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 presenting this, I know, I know. Jason is presenting this as a kind of supporting argument mm-hmm. like uh here uh, because he does this later in the context of of John or or rather about Peter. Yeah. In in the book of John where right. a similar thing is said where Jesus appears to be prophesying Peter's uh, death. Peter's death. Yeah. And uh and and what he says there is Now John would have been old enough that he's writing after the fact. So he could have um –
0: So he injects into the historical narrative – Something that is completely anachronistic.
1: That's how skeptics like us read this, right? <laughs> is, well, if he yes. knows it's after the fact, then this is one of those retroactive prophecies where mm-hmm. we know what happened and we say our leader knew it all along. Right. But uh, uh, Jason is a believer in these and takes unquestioningly that they must be true. So his take on it is, well, it was a prophecy of Jesus. But they John just included
2: it. it because it had even happened. Even though they
1: knew it already happened, yeah. they mentioned it as a confirmation of that prophecy. Right. But mm-hmm. that means John knew it happened, and so he must have been a witness yeah. or or had reliable information. Right. Right. Well, I hope it can be forgiven that Peter for not was really martyred. Finding that
0: compelling? Oh,
1: right? we can be forgiven <laughs> for not finding that compelling. <laughs> it's not even a hope. No, you can't simultaneously declare prophecy and take it as evidence that it happened yeah. you have to have you know you either have to have objective evidence that the thing and independent that it, that happened, it happened
2: first right yeah.
1: or there's nothing to talk about here i suppose even without assuming belief that passage for john could be taken to be like well he was obviously cocky enough that this happened maybe the commu- people in his community that he was writing to accepted this because they had some knowledge. But that's a whole lot of what's yeah. and ifs to go on. Yeah. And in fact, in that particular case, in the passage of John regarding Peter, I want to read that passage in just a moment, but but I don't want to go too far down a rabbit trail. We are at the moment talking about James, and all there is is that one passage in Acts that says he was killed by a He was a killed sword. by Herod, the, uh, the son the, of Zebedee. The fact geez. that Jesus says that he'll be executed... Doesn't add any extra legitimacy <laughs> to no this whatsoever. Uh, because you know what? I think we can accept this already. I think we can accept that James was killed. The relevant point is we don't know why. And, and there's he, no extra evidence. We don't know the manner of, right. of which and we don't know it was because of... Certainly uh, that
2: had anything to do with the resurrection.
1: And in fact, uh, the following passage with Peter seems to indicate that this might be more of a political move anyways. So. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Alright, moving on. We go to James, the brother of Jesus. Now, this is one that we don't have any scriptural evidence for, but it is mentioned in an extra biblical source. Josephus, uh, mm. the Jewish historian. Uh, good old Josephus. Yep, yeah, good old Josephus talks about James, the brother of Jesus, being stoned and, and? not in that fun way. Uh,
2: Damn. Ooh. I thought this was getting interesting.
0: So Josephus writes, Festus was now dead and Albinus was but upon the road. So he, and Annas assembled the Sanhedrin of Judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who is called Christ, whose name was James, and some others. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. This is uh, from Antiquities of the Jews.
1: And which I There believe we go. Is, That's
0: what we got. <laughs> which I believe is written in the 90s, am I Correct about that? In the late first century? Yeah, late uh, mm-hmm.
1: Josephus is late first That's century, hard though hard. it has later Josephus, because it was seized upon by Christian writers so often as an extra-biblical source that talked about some of this history mm. Josephus does have later additions textual scholars would say Josephus has literary seams mm. you can tell that there are passages that
0: that seem to flow if you were to yeah, take out a particular passage yeah,
1: but the context is broken by things and they the context is always broken by something that says something like Jesus is Je- cool yeah and <laughs> Jesus was the son of God by no doubt it's like and then <laughs> he think Jesus is
0: cool, walked down the road yeah. <laughs> (laughs) Weird thing for a first-century Jew to to be
1: saying um, makes you think – you know. and then these things are usually aren't in the oldest extant manuscripts either, which is another big hint Mm -hmm. that they were put in. But yeah, nevertheless, as far as James, the brother of Jesus, we do have this in here. So we have a sense that he was killed.
0: Okay, Because he was accused of breaking the law. Breaking
1: the law. And we don't know why. We don't know what was going on here. We're
2: not even told it's it's blasphemy, which would have been the law that he broke. Were he proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus, right?
1: So they want us to keep on considering, hey, this is really probable that it's because he was a Christian and everything else. Well, we've given the example of Stephen. It could be because he's Christian. All all these other scenarios that Mm -hmm. why somebody might be persecuted that have nothing to do with the specifics of his belief. But I'd like to use Josephus himself. As our evidence here, because if you look at the context of this passage, this whole passage is about how Albinus, the guy who condemns James to be Mm -hmm. uh, sentenced to death, he's kind of a cutthroat. This guy is this guy is one who doesn't give a crap about the rules. Mm -hmm. He's not getting approval from the Pharisees. He's just ramming through these executions of people that he doesn't like without any kind of oversight Mm -hmm. or control. And it's an, He's
2: just a guy who likes to see people die.
1: The passage is about how people actually tried to forestall this execution of James. Mm. They tried to say, no, look, we're not doing this right now. We need to appeal to a higher authority and get – and who's doing it? Pharisees. <laughs> mm. So in other words, these people who the New Testament depict as just craving Christian blood, like they just can't get enough of this right. Christian blood on their hands – in Josephus' account, they're the ones who are saying, no, we're not ready to kill James a little, yet. A little
0: breaks on this.
1: Let's go through the proper channels of authority before we ram through an execution of somebody who might be innocent.
0: Now, maybe
1: – So that does not was... suggest to me Jews hell-bent on executing Christians. Right, it actually right. suggests yeah. to me the complete opposite.
0: This
2: one guy hell-bent on executing people, right, right. as opposed to a systematic – we're killing off Christians because again, specifically for
0: right. and, this and belief. of course a breaker of the law, right what does that right. mean we don't we, we simply don't know yeah. we saw in
1: the case of Stephen, he was a breaker of the law, but it had nothing to do with the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Some even believe that Herod passage was just because Jesus claimed to be a king of the Jews, and you know somebody else like Herod who claims to be a king of who the is Jews, the king of the Jews, yeah uh, that would be incentive enough for mm-hmm. him to challenge this sect sure. and not because of any quirky beliefs about the resurrection. I mean, one thing we got to realize is, yeah, a lot of first century Jews hated first century Christians. Of course. No doubt about that. But that doesn't mean they were they were executing everybody in the street mm. who had a weird belief in messiahs or stuff like that. You know, it, there were all sorts of mystery cults. In I was going to say we have a very pluralistic society yeah. here. It's not like there
2: was the Jews and there was the Christians, right? Right. For, mean, a, for a while we're talking I mean, the Roman Empire. Gnostic the the
1: Christians there. weren't being Everything. executed in droves for their no. bizarre beliefs. You know, the Jewish Christian adoptionists weren't being mm. you know hacked to pieces and tossed the lions and every time you turned around the corner, quite frankly, they would have been used to people with peculiar and bizarre beliefs who were their countrymen. So
2: that takes care of James and James. Yeah. We have kind of the the two bigger figures, John Mm -hmm. and Peter. Those are the two that actually get a lot of
1: ink in the New Testament. For Peter, first of all, we don't have any evidence of his death or even martyrdom from This period. Mm. Would those stories about Peter being crucified upside down come from much, much later in the history? Nevertheless, our writer from Triablog argues that there's at least compelling scriptural evidence that this may have happened. And he goes to uh, the chapter of John 21, verse 18, at uh, which he claims that Jesus is actually prophesying Peter's death. Now, we already talked about why we're not going to take a prophecy as uh evidence as actual evidence, evidence of his death, yeah. but I want to go further than this to say even even if if the authors claim that this is a retroactive prophecy and that they must already know that he died mm. I want to read this passage and ask whether or not this really suggests Peter being executed by crucifixion. Call me crazy, but this to me does not sound at all like a crucifixion. Yeah. Here's the passage John chapter twenty one verse eighteen. This is during the scene where you know Peter's like Peter's having an emotional meltdown for denying Jesus, and yeah. Jesus is all totally super cool, passive Jesus guy, being like, "Do you love me, Peter?" Of course I love you. You know they do that kind of which you know a little bit of sexiness coming out yeah, here for definitely. me, uh, but that's my depraved mind. Don't let that <laughs> bother you. It says very truly, I tell on you. When you were younger, you dressed yourself. And you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. And then there's a little parenthetical added by the author that says he did this to tell him uh, the manner in which his death would honor God.
2: What? No, 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 no. I do not accept this for a moment. Yeah. When you were young, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted to. When you're old, you will stretch out your hands and other people will dress you.
1: Sounds to me like what he's saying is you're going to die an old man. You're going to get old. Yeah. That's exactly what he's saying. You can honor God in many different ways. (sighs) Yeah. And this one is not going to be martyred. This one's going to die an old man. Very, I mean, very but here's clearly, what they say. I say: stretched out your hands means to be crucified. crucified. Is
2: to stretch out your
1: hands, right? It says you will stretch out your hands. Yeah. It's not saying people will stretch out your hands, right? And right. and what what they try to say, uh, what what the author tries to claim here is, we have early church fathers using this expression, stretched out hands, yeah. uh, as a euphemism for crucifixion. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, John is probably written earlier than right. a lot of these texts, right. and if anything, if you know, he's trying to kind of play this game as if the allusions are from John to the to the church fathers. Yeah, whereas I find it, you know, it's more plausible to me the other way it's around. The other way, yes. if there is already a tradition that Peter was crucified, mm-hmm. stretching his hands is the their argument yeah. for that being the case then they're going to be using that language when they talk about crucifixion. Well, exactly. There's nothing to suggest to me that we should be uh, interpreting things the other way around. Right. Well, and, and now, first other off, than convenience for this we narrative. We should point
2: out that okay, so say the author of this book knows that Peter died by being crucified upside down. Okay? Mm-hmm. Say that he knows that. If he did, couldn't he have come up with a better way of making Jesus prophesy this? Well, that's what. Yeah,
1: I mean, that's I mean, it's, a it's, it's, that's a pretty amazing is so thing. So weak that that's. I mean, getting crucified upside down. That's that's uh, a very memorable. unusual. Yes, that's just, I mean, crucifixion
0: fairly common. Tends to
1: stick in the mind. I mean, yeah. Why are we getting ambiguous references to this instead of incredibly you know, yeah, right ambiguous? And when he also
0: cites First Clement. Of Rome.
1: I mean, Uh, Nostradamus predicts in better detail than that. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Uh, 1st Clement writes By reason of jealousy and envy, the greatest and most righteous pillars of the church were persecuted and contended even unto death. Let us set before our eyes the good apostles. There was Peter, who by reason of unrighteous jealousy endured not one but many labors and thus having borne his testimony, went to his appointed
1: place of glory. And that's used as evidence that he was martyred wow. too. Yeah. I don't get that from that passage. How can you read that? Well,
2: and I, I, I realize there's there is some that is lost in the translation. There is um, textual or contextual stuff that may say, "Well, yes, when they went to the place of his glory, that was a phrase that meant
1: another. right." That could but, be a euphemism, but it's very unspecific. Right now, the, continue reading about Paul. Now, right, right. We actually so, do have documents so keep, on what he went keep through. Keep in mind how
0: vague that was. Yes, yeah. And then when we get to to Paul, it says by reason of jealousy and strife. Paul, by his example, pointed out the prize of patient endurance. After that, he had been several seven times in bonds, mm-hmm. arre- arrested seven times, yep. um, had been driven into exile, had been stoned, had preached in the east mm-hmm. and in the west, and he won the noble renown, which was the reward of his faith, having taught righteousness unto the whole world and having reached the farthest bounds of the west. And when he had borne his testimony before the rulers, so he departed from the world and went unto the holy place having been found a notable pattern of patient endurance
1: Right. So Clement mentions All every bad thing that yeah. happened to, everything that bad that happened to Paul, to Paul except for the snake bite. <laughs> right, right. Is mentioned in in here, and, you know, enumerated. So in other words, when he has a source to parrot, yeah. he's more than willing to give us Well, and even gross that doesn't detail. give us anything about the details of Paul's and, death. And, 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 well, no, right. except for his death, yep. which I'm guessing they're probably in the dark on, on yeah, that one as well. But but Peter, it's this vague thing. Right now, and Peter's
0: I'm, the father of the church. Why right. would you not put? Right. Especially because martyrdom is such a big time thing back then. Especially exactly. why would you not use yeah. that as like he was a martyr and he was martyr. I, I mean, that's that's all they have to say is not even was,
2: I, go into detail. Just say. And he died. He was killed for his faith.
1: Right. He was crucified upside down. Yes. I mean, seriously, That's huge. they're going to mention Paul, you know, all seven times that he got yeah. locked into yeah. jail. And this is a but pretty But they're not going to mention somebody who's yeah. crucified Which would have
0: upside down. Been a very compelling argument, I think, if he had said that. Now, now the author- or at least it would establish that this was a very early tradition
2: that Peter yeah. had been right. crucified that way. It wouldn't prove that it happened, but it would at least show. Uh, uh, historicity to it
1: now. Triablog's blog's case for this being a, a evidence for his martyrdom is because of this first line by reason of jealousy and envy, which I want to point out right there. Jealousy and envy suggests that there were other teachers in the area that were didn't like him. And yeah, not, we're against like an internal coup right, or something right. like that rather than – He's
2: killed over jealousy and envy, not for false teachings right, or right. – yeah. In
1: fact, I I, mentioned, I forgot to mention this in my telling of uh, Stephen's stoning, but that's how his scenario starts out too. It doesn't start off with Jews in the synagogue hating him for mm-hmm. blasphemy. It starts off with some other group challenging him to a series of debates – and Stephen whips their butts at debate, <laughs> and then they get mad and make up false accusations. Man, right, and in fact, the 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 epistles Paul is seems to be very hyper concerned about what other Christians do out oh, yeah. of jealousy mm-hmm. of his authority. Yeah, that's a big. So theme, this is a he's
0: always trying to align himself with. The that's original a pretty message. popular
1: yeah. motif in these early texts. Are you know. Uh, Believe me, I think Christians are way more concerned about other Christians at this time and what they're teaching than they are about anybody else on the outside. Because, as Candida Moss pointed out, nobody gave a crap about Christians; Mm -hmm. they were just another cult. Mm. But anyway, they were largely
0: indistinguishable from the from at least from the outside looking in. Yeah, the Christians were just Jews.
1: Oh, somebody else who thinks the Messiah came. I mean, really, Mm -hmm. line up. Tacitus is saying like so many at this time there's so many people claiming to be a, a king that uh that this is messianic fervor like how right. could you how could you even sort them out but anyways I'll continue reading the line by reason of jealousy and envy the greatest and most righteous pillars of the church were persecuted and contended even unto death which is suggests death yes, <laughs> uh, certainly I get that but the the first thing I noted was persecuted and contended. So, in other words, struggling. Yes. This is a general statement about what some of the people went through. Mm-hmm. It's not a specific statement that they all died, right? It, yeah. it could be persecuted or it could be struggled. And then, actually, here, uh, you know, I got to give props to Jason for being honest. I wouldn't have known this because I wouldn't have read the entire book of 1st Clement to try to <laughs> refute this a little bit. <laughs> he did. And he tells us, honestly, and I appreciate this of him, so I really hate turning this against you, Jason, but I'm going to. He says, Clement tells us that Peter and Paul were persecuted unto death. Earlier, in section four, he makes that comment in regard to Joseph back in the Old Testament mm-hmm. with the Egyptians. He was persecuted unto death. Thus, the phrase can refer to being brought near death or death without dying. Uh, uh, and <laughs> Wow. Joseph suffered a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> g well, he, he suffered a lot, to yeah, be fair. I don't know how near death he even was. No. In other words, no, this doesn't mean that wow. you're going to be killed. It's great. We're trying to take Clement mm-hmm. as a first century witness, but mm. he doesn't seem to know the details. He's not recording the details how do we know exactly that these guys were even martyred Details or why Details that would want, have been so
2: effective for his audience.
1: Details that would have been really, and then really of course, sexed up the narrative.
2: Yeah, the argument is, well, everyone knew it. Why did he have to bother saying it? And we've seen that yeah, argument plenty of times yeah. before. Yeah, that didn't, that didn't well,
1: work and with clearly his. they didn't although know it yeah. because the because the church fathers actually have contradictory accounts right. of these things.
0: Right, and and that wouldn't explain why he's so detailed on Paul. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah.
1: Now with John, the evidence that John was killed again comes from much later sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the but uh, the author of this blog evokes once again those passages we read in Matthew twenty and Mark ten as saying, since John was mentioned as drinking Je- drinking Jesus's cup mm-hmm. in those passages, he right. must have uh, he must have been executed. That's him too.
0: Because in both That's, those passages, it's both of them. You know, that either right. their mother's asking for the two of them or they're asking, or they're asking so. together. This establishes
1: at best that later church history thought that John was executed. Yeah. John is one of those that is disputed by later mm-hmm. later uh, church fathers. Right. Some say a he was killed, he... a lot of them say that he just died of old age. Right.
2: Yeah, because now John. He was exiled. From what I was taught as a child, he was exiled. Um, what was the island he was sent Padmos. to? Padmos. Padmos. Where he wrote the Book of Revelation, that's that's yep. church tradition again.
1: Church tradition says that,
2: yeah. So that's, but that's. So
1: he lived out his life as a you know in exile. And exile, which is
2: which is a form of martyrdom. It's persecution, but it's, it's but certainly it's, you know not dying for a lie, which is the
1: premise we originally started I'd take started a vacation with. on Patmos
0: <laughs> if you're walking around in the first century and let's say you and your friends came up with this lie, right? Mm-hmm. And you yeah. start spreading it around and you're doing fairly well for yourselves because of this. If someone were to hold a sword up to you in front of all your followers, mm-hmm. right? And say, you know, tell me it was a lie or you're dead. You can either go and live the rest of your life known as the liar, right? Having the horrible reputation of having deceived all these people. Or you can dig your heels in and die a hero. It makes me wonder if, even if there was, you know, would that be, I mean, yeah. Even if James. I, I argued that to uh,
1: Cliff Connectly in my debate, as I said, it, it's entirely plausible to me. Mm-hmm. The, the same thing that, you know, you, you invest your life yeah. in this ministry, it doesn't work out the way that was expected. But you have all these followers. You've seen what a difference it makes in your life. You see what they're capable of when they have this ideal to follow. Mm -hmm. It's not even cynical – Right. To no. say that they might have lied. There might have been some nobility in these people. Yeah, they
0: might have been even, dying to for decide, the moral message, this, this message is, of moral you know, reform.
1: If, if this isn't true, I don't know what happened, I don't understand it, but if it isn't true, I don't want to live in a world where it isn't true. I, 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 and yeah. maybe I'm just going to trust because he taught us to believe. I'm just going to trust this. Right. You know, that to me is a completely conceivable scenario. But uh, nevertheless, I, I think mm. I think we should save some of that for next time because there's – what we've tried to demonstrate this episode and I think we've done it is – There's that, no evidence that it happened. The crux of that argument just doesn't have much evidence behind yeah. it. It's incredibly flimsy. It's incredibly circumstantial. It requires all – you to accept all sorts of ifs and buts mm-hmm. and maybes. And prophecies. Uh, right. Yeah. And yet it's declared as something that is so certain and undeniable that, that, that it would actually make a resurrection plausible. It's more plausible to believe that a person raised from the dead than that, <laughs> the, that, that someone died yeah, for a lie. Right. Yeah. It just doesn't have enough evidence that you would need to support it. But. Listeners of this show should not assume that we mean that to say that the argument was valid to begin with. (laughs) That if they did indeed, if we could indeed show that these people died, that somehow this argument holds weight. And in the next episode, we're going to talk about things like that. What would be sufficient enough to prove that a resurrection happened? We're going to delve into some of these narratives about the resurrection and see just who supposedly witnessed it happen. And we're going to consider some side arguments too. We're going to look at human psychology and consider would people indeed die for a lie? Do we have any other examples of this? And hopefully by the end of this, we'll have a pretty thorough, well-rounded refutation of what I think is one of Christianity's worst arguments.
2: And let's turn now to some (laughs) polyatheism. Today in polyatheism, we'll take a journey to one of the most distant places in our solar system. But first, we've got to make a stopover in the 49th state, or the first non-contiguous state, Alaska. This is the story of the goddess Sedna, or as she's known by some of the other groups who worship her, Arnaksac Arnakasak There's double A's and S's and Q's and Can such. you say it one more time, for me. Nope, nope, that's <laughs> it. Uh, Sasuma Arna uh Nerivik or a handful of other names that I also can't pronounce. Truth be told, there are more names for this goddess than there are Inuit words for snow. And there are more variations on her story than there are Inuit words for snow. <laughs> Analogies are hard, you guys. <laughs> I'm
1: going to look that yeah. up on Snopes. Do the Inuit really have all that many I, words for I was snow? wondering that.
2: <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. She is the goddess of the ocean and the underworld or land of the dead, which uh, is more or less the same thing, the ocean and the land of the dead when it comes to the Inuit. How she gets there is where we get the differences, She's generally portrayed as a beautiful young goddess, but at least in one version of the story, she grows up to become a hideous, one-eyed giantess who's so ugly and so unkempt that only the medicine men can bring themselves to look at her. Her father and mother finally have to do something about this monstrous Sedna when she begins to crave human flesh. And so they toss her into the sea. She sinks to the bottom and becomes goddess there. The more traditional version of Sedna's tale is a bit more Brothers Grimm than Sloth from Goonies, though. Brother, you guys. (laughs) Uh, Her father tries to marry her off to various young suitors, but none are to her liking. Sometimes this leads to her father uh, tossing her into the sea then and there. But in the more elaborate version, a very smelly seabird changes his shape into that of a handsome prince woos Sedna by offering her warm blankets, fine clothes, and a beautiful house that, quote, totes doesn't smell like complete ass, unquote. She falls in love with him. Uh, they move in, and she finds out that the blankets are in fact made out of slimy fish skins. The clothes are crummy, and the house was cold and drafty even by Alaskan standards. Furthermore, it totes did smell like complete ass, Totes, are we we middle school emo (laughs) girls or something? Yeah, that was a a shout out for my uh, teenage daughters. Uh, Sedna called out to her father for help, but he was too busy admiring Russia from his backyard. And Sedna had to live in the smelly seabird hovel until spring. Her father finally stopped by for a visit, discovered the trick that had been played on he and his daughter, and promptly beat the funky smelling seabird to death. Father and daughter then hopped into a kayak to head back home when they were set upon by all the smelly seabirds, smelly seabird friends. They attacked so ferociously, the kayak threatened to capsize. The brave father, Anguta, grabbed his daughter and tossed her into the sea, as all good fathers would. (laughs) Sedna grabbed onto the side and tried to pull herself back into the kayak and guta was dead set on winning his Father of the Year award, so he grabbed his knife and started cutting off Sedna's <laughs> fingers. Wow. wow. Yeah. As the fingers – makes me feel like a great dad. Uh, as the fingers fell into the sea, they became the first whales, walruses, seals, and fish. Still, Sedna uh, clung onto the side of the boat by her bloody stumps. Yeah, let's see you do that, Merle Dixon, or comic book version of Rick Grimes, or Jamie Lannister, or Luke Skywalker. God, or- I caught
1: Jamie Lannister. Yeah, I still yeah. don't get the Luke Skywalker reference. Or- I guess he had a hand cut he off. Got a hand
2: cut off. Oh, my God. Uh, or get Titus <laughs> Andronicus, or Marquis de Sade, or Ash. Well, actually, Ash probably could have done it because, you know, he's – yeah. It, by the way, I have to apologize. Those are all people getting their hands cut off and Sad not just got her fingers cut off. But they're, it's very hard to find iconic references to people getting fingers chopped off. Mm. Like the best I could come up with was that guy from Looper who didn't close the loop and uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character from Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. We're
0: sympathetic to a Dilemma.
2: Yeah, see, you get it. And that one episode of, uh, Incredible Stories where the kid got his fingers chopped off in a woodshed and then they had to apply leeches and that scarred me as a child. But again, not, not as iconic <laughs> as your Luke Skywalkers and, and so forth. Stumpy Sedna either, uh, sank to the bottom of the sea or made it back into the kayak and then the next night commanded dogs to eat her sleeping father's limbs. <sighs> who then screamed so horribly that the ground opened up and they both plummeted into the underworld.
1: All these myths are starting to read like Tarantino films. (laughs) I know, right?
2: (laughs) Chopping off an ear and dancing with it. However she got there, Sedna ends up as the goddess of the sea slash underworld. The Inuit believed that in order to have a successful fishing or whale hunting or seal hunting or whatever they were hunting trip – Their priests would have to venture out into the sea and do the one thing that Sedna couldn't do for herself, brush her hair. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's (laughs) the only inconvenience a lady missing her fingers has. (laughs) Of course. Sedna had a long and prosperous career as goddess of the sea and underworld, but she attained a new level of success back in 2004 – When a new trans-Neptunian object was discovered and has officially been designated 90377 Sedna. Trans-Neptunian objects, by the way, are what we call small things that are still large enough to name in our solar system that are beyond the orbit of Neptune, such as Pluto, which also, interestingly enough, is named after another god of the Underworld. Uh there's something of a gentleman's agreement at this point now to name all of the other trans-Neptunian objects after gods from the Arctic regions. And Sedna, of course, was the first of those. So there you have it. Sedna, fingerless Inuit goddess of the sea and underworld, and just one more goddess worth not believing in. Uh, so that's going to do it for us this time. We'll be back soon with uh, another episode on martyrdom. Uh, hopefully no more stats about Muslims. I don't think I can take it. And uh, in the meantime, you can check out our uh, videos on youtube.com slash doubtcast, including the new video – of Justin's recent debate.
0: Uh unfortunately I won't be able to have that on the Doubtcast video. But oh, I did link it on the Facebook. It's on so, our Facebook. Facebook.com
2: so slash Doubtcast. Exactly. It's linked there. Um, and we'll probably, for those of you who don't like to watch videos online, we'll probably be dropping that as a Absolutely. Um, extra episode soon too, so you'll be able to listen to it. But if you watch it, you get to see slides and everything. Uh, so our Facebook.com slash doubtcast. Also, twitter.com slash doubtcast, and you can email us at doubtcast at gmail.com, and we'll be back soon with more reasonable doubts, your skeptical guide to religion.